Amen. Thank you, Nate. You arranged that too? Man. We're so blessed to have uh, in Music City musicians like Carol and Nathan and Richard. So glad to have you guys sing the power of God and all hail the power. Did y'all coordinate? Must be something that we need to hear about the power of God in this place today. Our God is all powerful. He is omnipotent. We need to be reminded of that. When things seem like they're falling apart, our God is all-powerful. It's a good reminder. Today we're going to finish this two-month series called Built that we've been doing for all of January and February, walking through the amazing letter to the Ephesians. And next week, we're going to start a a month-long series in March on prayer. We're going to have a season of prayer where I invite you all to join us, the staff, and the rest of the church in praying every day in the month of March for the same things in the same direction. If you did not receive a purple, it's kind of a Lenten prayer guide for the month of March, there are stacks of them in the north foyer, in the south foyer. Please grab one on your way out. You can each have one in your family. There's enough for everybody. And we are calling for a season of prayer and fasting. Lent is historically a time of reflection, repentance, fasting, a time of focus, getting ready for the glorious Easter Sunday, which is April 1 this year. Which uh, this, this season, what we're asking you to do is to spend some time in discernment, asking God what he would have us to do as a church going forward into this next chapter, this next season of our lives. I think it'll be a powerful time as you consider what you can maybe give up, what what distractions are preventing you from coming to the Lord honestly in prayer. And as we've been reading Ephesians for the last two months, we've been specifically thinking about how Ephesians is speaking to us as the church. What is Ephesians saying to not just me, Nathan Parker, but to a body of believers? Because Ephesians functions kind of like blueprints for the design of a, of a building. Ephesians shows us how God has designed the church to be built, how the church is supposed to fit together and function properly. And I've said that the first half, the first three chapters of Ephesians lay out this beautiful, magnificent theological foundation for the church on which to be established. And the, and the last three chapters are the so what part. It's the practical application of how then we should live as a church. And we don't have time to to walk through all of of the next three chapters, but I want us to dip our toes in chapter four today and see how the Apostle Paul, who's, who's writing this beautiful letter while under house arrest in Rome, starts to show us how God has built us into this house and how we should function together in light of how God has designed us to to live on a day-to-day basis. So it's really divided into three sections here, and I encourage you to go home and read the last two and a half chapters of Ephesians and see how God speaks to you about how you can live out the practical applications of these first three chapters that we spent a lot of time in. But uh, I'm going to try to tackle each of these three sections in the first part of chapter four individually. So let's stand together this morning, if you're able to, out of honor for God's word. And I'm going to read the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. When I think about that with all humility and gentleness and patience, I think about John Buchanan. That guy has exemplified humility and patience and gentleness throughout this process. And kudos to you guys as a church, too. We didn't really have to ask for any money. To, I was concerned that we didn't have $80,000 to buy new TV equipment. And it just it, it showed up. It was clearly the Lord's will. And you guys um, always have a way of stepping up when you need to. So thank you for that. All right, so Paul starts this section with what? With a call to unity, to be one, to, to fight against the divisions that Satan would love to bring between us as he drives wedges between us. We've already seen how Paul's explained in great detail how we as God's people are supposed to be built together, right? Built as one into a single house for God to dwell in. I don't know who it was, but some wonderful thoughtful person dropped a little note in the box outside my office after the service a couple weeks ago, and it said, just a thought, just a thought, B-U-I-L-T, built, building, uh, built up in love together. I said, oh, that's so good, I wish I'd thought of that, that's, that's wonderful, B-U-I-L-T, built up in love together. That's one of the key themes here in this letter. That God has built us as one in his loving purposes for the church. It's a, a wonderful way to illustrate this, this essential truth in Ephesians. So Paul encourages us here to remember in, in chapter 4 to walk worthy of the calling which we've received. The, the Greek word here for walk is parapateo, and it literally means to walk around. You know, for those of us who are blessed to still be ambulatory and on our feet. We walk every day. It's one of the most basic things we do. We get up, we walk to the restroom, we walk to the kitchen, we walk to our car, we walk into work, we walk into school, we, we walk to our class, we walk to the, the fridge, we walk to wherever we go. It's a basic part of our everyday lives. It's, that word is sometimes translated maybe in your Bible as live. Live worthy of the calling which you've received. But it literally means to walk around because what Paul is saying here is when he says walk worthy, he's not saying be good, follow the rules, go to church. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that in every aspect of your life, at home, at work, at play, at school, wherever you go, live in such a way as a representative of our holy family as the people of God. We represent our good, good Father as, as Christians in everything we do, everywhere we go, in everything that we say. We each tell the world about the God that we serve by the way we live our lives as we walk around each day. If you go out to eat on Sunday, whether you're a believer or not, your server probably assumes that you were at church and therefore you're a Christian. So how you treat them is one way that you tell them about Jesus. Are you kind to them? 
Are you gentle with them? Are you patient? I'm not always. Are you generous with a tip? Uh Uh-oh. What about at work or at home? Do you offer to pray for your grieving coworker who just lost a parent? Are you encouraging and and long-suffering with your family? Sometimes it's the hardest thing to treat our siblings with love, right? I think that it's essential what Paul is saying here is to walk worthy of the calling that we've received to be children of God means to live it out in everyday life, not just on Sundays. Then look at verse 2 again. This is what it looks like to walk worthy, to be humble, to be patient, to be gentle, and to be loving. And those are all fruits of the Spirit, right? We know in Galatians 5, Paul says these are things that only the Holy Spirit can bring to fruition in our lives. No amount of human effort can make us more kind or gentle or patient or loving. Only the Holy Spirit can break down our selfishness, our anger, our greed, and bring about these good things in us. And the Holy Spirit is what binds it all together. He says in verse 3 that in this house that God is building, the Holy Spirit is kind of like the the mortar that keeps it all in place, right? Right? The the Holy Spirit that lives in you, if you are a redeemed saint who's been saved by grace through faith, and the same Spirit that lives in you is the same Spirit that lives in me. It's the Holy God, God the Spirit that we just sang about. That same Spirit unites us all together as parts of the same building, one structure, each one playing our part, but connected tightly by the bond of peace between each other. Because Jesus Christ is our peace. He's broken down the dividing wall between you and me. No matter what kind of background you come from, no matter what kind of sins you've had in your past, no matter what kind of socioeconomic status you may have or have not achieved, we are one in Christ Jesus whose Holy Spirit now dwells within us. How can we truly be one though how can we function as one this world we're so distant and disconnected social media just kind of proves that even more how disconnected we all are how can we really function as one unit well my family got to go to the belmont basketball game i know ryan snell and Brittany were there last night too and some others it's a great game and, and it was amazing to watch. We were so close. We were up on like the front row. And every time Belmont was on offense, when one player moved, the other four immediately reacted. They functioned as one unit. They each knew exactly where they were supposed to go. And when one person did one thing, the others did another thing in, in sync, perfectly functioning as one unit. It was awesome. They won by 25. It was a great game. A beatdown, I think is what Ryan called it. <laughs> How do, you, how do you, we function that way? How do we learn to, to function as, as one unit, like a, a well-coached basketball team? Well, think about it. These players have all bought into a doctrine of selflessness, of unity, of hard work. They've all bought into that doctrine. And the doctrines that we buy into matter greatly, don't they? Because the doctrines we really give our lives to determine how we play. They determine how we live our lives. We need a great coach like Coach Rick Bird at Belmont to to teach us a doctrine that we can live out, that we can live our lives by. 
So that's why Coach Paul here gives us a creed that we just sang about, a confession of faith, a statement of doctrine that we can give our lives to to lay a foundation for unity in verse 4. Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. So one church, the body of Christ, one spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, and that's our Lord Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Isn't that great? Here we get the classic, robust, orthodox Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity spelled out for us right here. One Holy Spirit, one Lord, Jesus the Christ, and one Father, the God of all. Our God is three in one. We've been singing it all month. No, we're not polytheists as some Muslims have accused Christians of being. We believe that the three persons of the Trinity are perfectly one cohesive unit, a singular God. They are literally unified in all that they do, more so than any basketball team in the history of basketball. And the unity of the Trinity is the same unity that binds us together as the church. We have a holy connection now to one another. And God, through the Holy Spirit who now indwells us, gave us this powerful connection in order to work out His redemptive purposes for creation through us. He unifies us in order to fulfill His purposes in creation. Think about that for a second. We each have a part to play in that redemptive work. Right? Paul says here in verse 7 that the ability that each one of us has to play our part in that redemptive purpose is a grace that was given to us by Christ as a gift. He says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. That, That includes you. Each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended to earth is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul's taking a prophecy, a messianic prophecy here from Psalm 68 about how the Messiah would lead his captives in in a victorious march, and he applies it to us. You know, Paul does this same image in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I preached on this passage last fall. I'm sure you remember. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. I love that verse. When I preached on it last fall, I said how the Roman generals would lead their captives through the city of Rome in a triumphal procession. It was called a Roman triumph. They showed off the spoils of their conquest to the whole city. But Paul says that Christ leads us as the ransomed, redeemed souls that he has won, not with chains around our our backs, but with the bonds of sin and death released 
following our victorious general in a glorious march of praise, spreading the fragrance of victory over sin everywhere that we go. It's a beautiful picture. Christ descended, it says here, based on this psalm, to the earth. He condescended to our level, became like us as Carol just prayed, and gave us the grace to play our part in God's purposes for the world. And while we all have a place, we all have a part to play in this story, some have the role of equipping and leading others. Those of us who are leaders in the church are supposed to help everyone else figure out their part. Look at verse 11. And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that word is pastors in Greek, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What? Okay, according to this passage, who's supposed to be the minister here? Is it me or you? Who's supposed to do the ministry? The pastors or the saints? It says here that the saints are doing the work of the ministry. Uh Uh-oh. My job? Richard's job? Trey? Rachel? The rest of our staff's jobs are really supposed to help us all do the ministry together. Don't leave it to the professionals. We're not any more professional ministers than you are. Every Christian is called to the ministry and is called to build up the body in love and, and to make it into a glorious home for Jesus Christ. But that takes a great deal of spiritual maturity. In order to be a minister, you must be built up as a mature Christian. And if we do that, if we're mature Christians, then God's house will stand tall and strong and glorious the way he intended for it to be. Look at verse 13. Paul says that we are to build up this body of Christ until we all attain to the unity, there's that word again, of the faith, the one faith that we all share, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, knowing Christ. To mature manhood, that means to complete adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He is our standard. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. We know that Satan is the great deceiver, that we have to be built up and developed as mature believers before we can effectively render Satan's schemes ineffective, before we can play our part as ministers in God's redemptive plans, we have to grow up. We have to mature. The 31-day prayer guide that you, some of you received in Sunday school, and I hope the rest of you will grab one on your way out, it's a chance for you to be built spiritually, for us all to be built spiritually. Andy, our communications director, was, was putting it all together on Friday, and he said, I can't wait to do this. I can't wait to pray these things every day. They're written by some of our wise church members. They're really uh, great devotions. One way you could grow spiritually is jo- joining a small group. It's an incredible way. I would say it's an essential way to invest in the lives of others and grow spiritually. If you're not in a Bible study class, 
come see me or one of our staff people. Come to the lunch after this today, and we'll walk you through the different classes that we have. I think someone from the small group ministry is going to be there as well. You could serve. You could pour out your life as a greeter here. You could be a, a preschool worker, a youth worker, children's worker, a committee member. We had a nominating uh, committee meeting this morning. It was awesome, thinking about where people are going to serve. Be a deacon. These are all ways to mature and grow and serve in your faith. And mature Christians know Christ, the Son of God, personally. Paul says here that the goal is for us to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to give our lives, to follow Him, because we're convinced deep down that knowing Christ is superior to anything else this world has to offer. Paul also says that we're not supposed to be like ships that are lacking the proper rudder system and they're just kind of tossed by wherever the current is taking them. You know, mature Christians aren't suckers. They don't fall for the lies of this world. They don't fall prey to the advertising culture that we live in that constantly tells us how to be happy by looking a certain way or by obtaining a certain thing or by achieving a certain level. I've always prayed this, this verse about spiritual maturity over our youth when I was a youth minister. After they graduated, I prayed that our young people had become mature in their faith enough to where they went off to whatever they did after graduation that they wouldn't fall for whatever prevailing doctrine came their way as something that they needed to have or something that was cool or something that was attractive after they left our ministry. So instead of false teaching, instead of the lies of this world, let, let mature Christians embrace and follow the truth with a capital T. Look at verse 15. Rather, rather than being tossed to and fro, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. How many times have you wanted to tell teenagers, grow up? <laughs> Parents, you want to tell your kids, grow up. That's what Paul's telling all of us here. Grow up. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The title of the sermon is, We're Built to Keep Building. We are built to perpetuate the building that's going on here in this place. And it says here that we, we grow up in one way by speaking the truth. The truth, Jesus said, will set you free. You know, in our prevailing culture, it's, it's not always fashionable, it's not always acceptable to say that there is, is absolute truth. Because if one thing is true, that must mean that the other thing is not. The other thing is false. It's not always a very nice way to say things uh, in our culture today. If, you know, some people really like the idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth, that everything is relative. You just live your truth and I'll live my truth. Just don't tell me how to live my life and I won't tell you how to live your life. Even though they just did tell you how to live your life. <laughs> You know what's wrong with that, right? Or what's one thing that's wrong with that? <laughs> is that the statement, there is no absolute truth, is presented as an absolute truth, right? <laughs> Did I lose you? 
Think, think about this. If I said there is no absolute truth, I'm presenting it to you as a statement that has to be either accepted or rejected. It's a propositional truth statement. Even if I said there is no absolute truth, okay, except one, that there is no absolute truth. Well, that's two absolute truths, right? So you can keep going. If I said there is no absolute truth except two, that there is no absolute truth, well, there is no absolute truth except two, that there is no absolute truth, and that there's only one exception. That's three absolute truths. You can keep going. I'm not going to. You get the point. Secular philosophers are, are coming back around to this idea of truth with a capital T. If something is true for you, it has to be true for me. That's what truth means. So let's speak the truth. Truth-telling is so powerful. It breaks chains. When I took a class on racial healing at Lipscomb as part of my doctoral program, we talked a lot about the power of truth-telling. We have to speak the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's absolute truth. And yes, it is exclusive. But Tim Keller points out that all major world religions have exclusive truth claims. Everyone agrees with that, that every major world religion has an exclusive truth claim at its core. But he says of, of all the exclusive truth claims that are out there, Christianity is the most inclusive exclusive truth claim. <laughs> because in Christ there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female. There is no slave or free. For all are one in Christ Jesus. And we aren't supposed to run around beating people over the heads with this truth, are we? That's where I can get lost sometimes. We, we forget sometimes that we are to tell the truth in love. Love must be the motivation behind our truth-telling, not winning an argument, not defending our own reputation, not putting someone else down. I'm sure we've all seen street preachers. You can go downtown today and see one on the corner or, or supposed Christian protesters who are anything but loving. Whether we're speaking the truth or acting in accordance with the truth, it's always to be done with love as the motivation, with love at the core of it, with love as the goal and the means. Martin Luther King insisted that the protests that he led were to be loving and nonviolent because he knew that only love could drive out hate. Loving truth-telling is infinitely more powerful and more effective than fearful truth-telling, than cold, you know, argumentative truth-telling, than mean-spirited truth-telling. Loving truth-telling is a lost art in our culture, our culture of talking heads and media wars, but the gospel models how we are to do this, how we are to balance truth and love without compromising one or the other. Again, Tim Keller in his, his great book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says this, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we really cannot hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. Totally affirming, and yet totally honest about how sinful and depraved we are. 
Let's allow the gospel to show us how to hold this tension of both truth and love out to a world that desperately needs both. And the key to all of this is submission to our leader, to our head, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. He first loved us. That's how we know love. We're following his example. And when we are really following the way that Christ loved and told the truth, when we follow his leadership, when we follow his purpose with our whole lives, then we are growing together into the kind of house that he would feel at home in. So as we finish the series, I I can't help but think about Woodmont Baptist Church and where we are in, in this whole process. And the truth is, I'm excited. I see God growing us into the kind of place that he wants us to be and how each person is playing their part and finding their purpose in that. I'm so encouraged and thankful for the work of the Spirit among us. But we have room to grow, right? Myself, chief of anybody. We've not yet obtained to the full measure of Christ the standard of Jesus, the standard of His perfection. So let me close with a few key takeaways, just four things that I see here that are going to help us be built into the household of God. I've been thinking a lot about being more intentional with how I live my life, with my time, with my money, with my family, with my work. And that word keeps coming up in church too. We've been talking about it for a year now, about being more intentional with the ministry of Woodmont Baptist Church. So here's four things I see that we need to be more intentional about or else they won't happen. First, we should be more intentional about our daily walk. Everywhere we go, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every person we encounter is a divine appointment placed there by God for us to meet. We have to learn to see every day as a holy occasion that God has given to us and walk worthy of our calling as the people of God. Second, we have to be more intentional about allowing the Spirit to unite us like the mortar between these bricks bonds the bricks together to be one, to function as a single unit. That takes a lot of humility, takes a lot of patience, takes a lot of letting our barriers down and being vulnerable with one another, doing life together. I heard Coach Bird at Belmont say once, it's amazing what a team can accomplish when no one cares about who gets the credit. So true. He preaches that to his team all the time. When we all lay our own agendas aside, when we let the walls fall and really get to know one another and love each other and do life together, then we see God do something so much greater through us as a body than we could ever accomplish on our own. Third, we have to be more intentional about our calling as ministers. We're all in this together as ministers. We're all called to carry out God's will, not only for our own lives as individuals, but for the church and for the community and the world around us. What are you doing to allow the the grace that God has given to you to, to, to minister to others? How are you allowing God's gifts that he's given you to, to serve the kingdom? How are you pouring out God's blessings into others around you? How are you putting the the spiritual gifts he's given you to work in your life. If you need to find a place of service, we do have these little cards. We haven't used them in a long time, but they are at the connection centers that have places where you can serve here at Woodmont. 
Pray about it. Talk to a staff member. Ask someone where you could plug in at Woodmont. I promise you we have places where you could serve and pour out into others. Finally, fourth, we have to be intentional about holding the tension between truth and love. Let's don't compromise on either one. Our world can't afford to let go of either one. They need them both badly. I know I'm prone to stray and run to one or the other to either be truthful in a cold and dogmatic way or just be loving in a way that just ignores all the facts and the flaws. Let's look to Christ's leadership. Let's allow the gospel to show us what the example of radical commitment to truth-telling and selfless, perfect love at the same time. Walk worthy, function as one unit, do ministry, and speak the truth in love. If we do those four things well, we're going to see this house continue to be built into a glorious dwelling for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you. We need your spirit to bind us to one another just like the mortar holds these bricks together. God, forgive us for having our own agendas. Forgive us of being isolated and fearful of connections with others. God, forgive us for only viewing our spiritual lives as Sunday only. Forgive us for believing that our lives can be made right by going to church on Sunday only. God, I pray that you would help us to walk worthy everywhere we go of the calling that you've given us. Help us to function like a well-coached team where we balance each other, where we play off of each other, where we build up one another in encouragement and love. And help us all to find our place in ministry. Help us all to, to serve where you would have us to serve, to pour out our lives as we function in our role that you've called us to in this church and beyond. And God, may we not compromise ever on either truth or love. Help us to be radical in our commitment to both truth-telling, honest, open truth-telling, and selfless, radical love that gives without expecting in return. God, we need you. We can't do these things on your own. Only you're on our own. Only your Holy Spirit can do these things in our lives. So we pray for a, a movement of your Spirit. We pray that the 31 days of March would be a rich time of spiritual growth where your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and make us more like you and let our walls come crumbling down. We pray that we would see your Spirit at work and that we'd be able to follow boldly with confidence that following you is always the best option. We love you, our Father. We pray this in the high and holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you've never made a commitment to Christ, if you've never accepted his free gift of salvation that is offered to you by grace through faith, there's no better time than right now to do so. We're going to have a time of invitation and response. Maybe you've kind of been an outside brick of the church, but now you're ready to plug in and be sealed by the Holy Spirit into this body and be a part of what God's doing as we are building up the body of Christ here. If you want to join Woodmont as a member, I'd love to talk with you about that and then walk you downstairs for a glorious lunch at a new members and inquirers luncheon. Uh, whatever it is that you need to do today, let's stand and sing Have Thine Own Way, a hymn of submission to God. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation now.